This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Hi, and welcome to Lens Me Your Ears, the show that takes a look at movies and theaters or on streaming services and connects them to films from days gone by. Maybe because of the actors that are in them, or maybe the genre, or perhaps a director or someone working behind the scenes whose work we admire and want to highlight. And uh, that's uh, that's what we do every week. I'm Stephen Cook. I'm a multimedia journalist here in Halifax with the Chronicle Herald and the Saltwire Network. Hi, I'm Karsten Knox. I am a film writer. I have a blog uh, called Flaw in the Iris. You can find at halifaxbloggers.ca. And today it's uh, Halloween on the horizon, and we've been watching some scary movies, starting with a brand new one in theaters called Barbarian. And we'll be back to shiver your timbers right after this. So, Stephen, here we are back again, talking about movies as we are wont to do every uh, couple of weeks <laughs> Completely here. Completely want to do on yes. the uh, on the podcast. Lends me your ears and show on CKDU uh, here in Halifax, and uh, it's October, and the leaves are tra- changing, and it's getting chilly. There's a bite in the air, and so we're watching horror movies. I mean, do we need an excuse? I sometimes do. I mean, I've said this repeatedly <laughs> on this podcast that uh, and show that uh, I am not always up for horror movies. I need to be in the right frame of mind. And, you know, of course, before Halloween, it feels like this is the time to get in that right frame of mind. And so we were also tipped off. Not only are there a number of horror uh, films in cinemas right now, but... uh, 80s horror on the Criterion channel, which we both subscribe to. I mean, the Criterion channel is no end of uh, of great movies to watch at any time of the year. But uh, the fact that they have a, a bundle of, of 80s horror, and I think there's maybe 30, 30 of them. I mean, there's a lot. There's a lot. I've, I've got the, the screen up in front of me, and it's it's substantial. Yeah. Some, some classics, some films I'm sure you've never heard of. And, uh, and some, some I've never heard of. Yeah. And, and a bunch of titles that I've been wanting to see since the days of uh, VHS stores since seeing the cover for, say, Society at Jumbo Video and never really um, taking the bite on that one. And oh. it's, you know, it's, it's a classic. It's from Brian Yuzna, who I think was involved with the Reanimator series. I'm not the director of those films, but but uh, maybe a producer or writer for those. And and. You know, as as much as I love the first couple of Reanimator films, I'd, I'd never seen Society. Uh, you know, Frank Henlotter, uh, his uh, brain damage, and also his Basket Case, which are some classic kind of satirical New York end of the Grindhouse era horror movies that are a lot of fun to watch and 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 have a really good sense of the kinds of films they are. I mean, they're they're gruesome and and extreme, but they're also uh, kind of a little bit meta in a way. And uh, those are worth checking out. So so it's great that Criterion, they understand the high art. You know, they, they will do the Jean-Luc Godard retrospective because they have access to those films, but they're not afraid to uh, venture into some great trash either. Yeah, well, I mean, look at the, some of these we've already spoken about on our podcast. Scanners from, uh, you know, Cronenberg. Uh, we've talked about Cue the Winged Serpent. Yes. Uh, but there's others here. The I mean, Hidden? I've no, yeah, The there? Hidden that's, is, that's, is amazing. That's a must-see. That's a must-see. I keep here seeing mentions of The Hidden on social media, so people are still discovering that one. Um, and, you you know, there's a bunch of other ones here that are also great. I've seen certainly seen uh, Tetsuo Iron Man. Uh, you know, from days past, I would I would certainly recommend that if people haven't seen it. Uh, Nicholas Cage and Vampires Kiss. Uh, there's yeah. So anyway, all of which to say, um, oh, a Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, which is 
terrifying, and I don't know that I'll ever watch it again, but it's there if you haven't seen it, and I would certainly recommend that. Um, but we're going to go deeper into some other ones that we'd either had seen so long ago we'd forgotten, or we had neither of us had ever, ever seen before. Yeah, there were definitely some in the always meant to catch up with uh, category that I was really happy to uh, be able to watch for this show. Yeah, for sure. Um, but let's talk, let's start anyway by talking about a film that's newish in cinemas. It's been out for a few weeks, and that's Barbarian, written and directed by Zach Krieger. I hope I'm saying pronouncing his name right, or Kreger. Um, now, Barbarian is a uh, a really, I would say the concept is really solid. I mean, yeah. who isn't scared of creatures potentially or even weird-ass human beings living in, you know, the basement? Uh, so there's a lot of that. I really like the concept, but uh, Barbarian really, oh, man, by the end of it, I was so mad at this movie. Oh, yeah. I was just like, this is just so <laughs> silly and implausible and ridiculous. Uh, it, it just does things. Now, here's the thing, and I'm going to tip my hat uh, towards or tip my hand towards my bias against some horror. Um, and I will say the first problem that Barbarian has in its horror character decision making, which I have encountered frequently in horror movies I've watched over the years, including most recently another high concept picture called Fall, wherein capable, seemingly intelligent human beings behave so incredibly stupidly that it throws the whole enterprise into doubt, <laughs> let alone any sympathy you might yes, have for it. That does happen here, for yes. sure. Yes, and here we have a lead character go into a dark, terrifying place. Not once, not twice, but three times. Now, you, some of that could be called historic because maybe there is, a, you know, there is a... Um, you know, there's someone trapped down in the dark, scary place that needs help, and maybe that's what they're doing it for. But the other obvious option would be to leave and find help and never return to such a place. Um, so anyway, that that was I was just like throwing popcorn at the screen, uh, basically <laughs> watching that. The second problem is the plotting issues, where I'm just like. Anyway, I don't want to give too much away because there might be people listening to this who really want to see the film. And, you know, more power to you if you do. But um, there are there are things that happened the last 15 or 20 minutes that I was just like, oh, come on. I was rolling my eyes almost out of my skull watching this. So, so yeah. But I would say conceptually and stylistically, it has a lot to recommend it. The basic story is uh, about Tess played by Georgina Campbell. She's visiting Detroit for a job interview. She's booked an Airbnb in Brightmoor, which is, in fact, an actual neighborhood in Detroit, which is one of the city's more desolate neighborhoods over time. It's, you know, people have left and, and you know, houses are crumbling. Um, there, When she arrives at the house, which is actually in reasonably good shape, she meets Keith, played by Bill Skarsgård of It and, uh, this, of course, the Swedish acting dynasty, many brothers and father Stellan. Um, and by due to some sort of mix-up, they're both renting the same house at the same night. So, uh, you know, they basically try to figure out what's going on and try to make some kind of situation better, even though they're both a little bit awkward with each other. And in the first 30 minutes, I wouldn't say much happens in this movie, except they start to get along, Tess and Keith. Um, and then Tess discovers a hidden door in the basement, which leads to a dark sub-basement where something really horrible awaits. Uh, and then there's a second act where Justin Long gets involved, and he's a Hollywood actor whose reputation and career is in tatters, and he needs to liquidate some real estate to help pay his legal bills. And he comes to Detroit, and he gets involved in all of this. And by the time we get to the third act, there's, there's flashbacks, there's all sorts of unexpected stuff. All of that, I thought, was actually really clever. I liked 
I like this sense of decaying America over time. I liked uh, this element of toxic men, you know, and how, I mean, there's a lot of, of stuff on its mind in this film. I just thought that the actual execution of much of it was just <laughs> awful. But anyway, I, uh, Stephen, what did you make of well, I, Barbarian? I, I certainly enjoyed it uh, a lot more than you did. I do agree that it kind of falls apart in the third act for sure. Uh, but I did like Georgina Campbell as Tess. Uh, I hadn't uh, seen her before. I think she's the the most prominent credit. I mean, she's she's done a lot of stuff. Um, the third season of Broadchurch, which, which I haven't gotten to yet, is uh, looks like her most prominent uh, role to date. And I'm looking forward to, to catching up with that series, uh, especially knowing that she's in it, because she's very appealing. And that whole give and take with Keith, the, the Skarsgård character, is is very well done that first third of the film where because you know you're in a horror movie and th- they kind of play with that a little bit you know mm. she can't find she can't get the key and she's in this desolate neighborhood all by herself and he's a little creepy and he's a little creepy because yeah. you know she, she, I guess she's woken him up and and he you know he's kind of playing that uh, nice guy but maybe a little too nice mm-hmm. card where you're not really sure what his intentions are and uh, and then of course then we start to you know we go down the stairs and we've got the door that that won't stay open and and the, there's lots of fun little uh, you know horror cues along the way to to kind of jolt our interest and then we have that uh, quick cut to California all of a sudden and Justin Long in his I think Alfa Romeo convertibles cruising down the 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 Pacific Highway singing to Donovan <laughs> and, like, yeah, yeah. and I'm, I'm sitting there cause I didn't, I, I purposely did not read anything about the film. I didn't watch a trailer. Um, I just kind of went in cold and I didn't even know Justin Long was in it because <laughs> you don't get the credits at the start. Mm-hmm. And um, the thought that something terrible might happen to Justin Long sort of increased my admiration for the You're film. you a fan of the guy? I've never been a fan. You know, that's probably why I like the Kevin Smith's Tusk more than I probably should have because terrible things happened to Justin Long. And uh, so I, that sort of goosed my anticipation of what was going to happen uh, in the next uh, chunk of the film. And, and they, were not, uh, they were not disappointed. But, uh, but, uh, but what the characters uh, sort of do in that, that last escape, you know, when, when there were opportunities to to get away or to, you know, to enlist the help of the police and instead, you know, you end up, you know, pissing them off. And it, it's, uh, it just, uh, yeah, that, that stuff didn't ring true. Uh, it just felt like the, they kind of ran out of momentum and just needed things to happen to make the plot mechanics work. But, uh, you know, there were, there were enough, there was enough creepiness and, and good character moments in the first, yeah, I'll say two thirds of the film that, you know, it was just getting to the denouement was was more sort of horror movie bo- boilerplate, I guess, and and uh, and and then and of course the fact that um, the thing that has them all scared and terrified and running for their lives has weird s- properties of strength that don't make any sense. Yeah, hundred percent. That that, yeah. that might be that might be my uh, my biggest uh, nitpick was was you know the fact they can like burst through a concrete wall or whatever. I'm just like really. Um, you know, so there were, there were moments where the suspension of disbelief, uh, was not suspended. Yeah. Uh, but, but I did, I did like it in terms of atmosphere that, that, that there were enough smarts to, to get me through that, uh, that last, uh, third to the end. But, uh, but I, I guess maybe the first two thirds set up higher expectations that the, the finale can't really, uh, really, um pay off. Yeah, I mean, I'm more or less along board with you, Stephen. I found that there were things going on, even in the first two-thirds, where I was like, 
Really? Like, like where one character begs another character to stay put while they investigate the problem going on, and then when the other, when the one character has then vanished in the mid mid investigation, the other character follows them into the dangerous area, and I was just like, like I was just like, come on, come on, really? I think there's enough of a of a of a. I mean, it's you know, it's horror movie characters making bad decisions are always they always feel like they're people who have never watched a horror movie in their life. <laughs> that is very true. You know, and I'm just like, come on, we all know this is a bad idea. There's no surprise here. This you're just looking like an idiot. You're making me feel like an idiot for for having not figured out your character motivations better than this. So, anyway, yeah, but then by the end, like there is a moment where Long gives a uh, a ridiculous speech about whether he thinks he's a good person or a bad person, and I just felt like that was way too on the nose. Uh, yeah, uh, <clears throat> yeah, and then that almost supernatural um, power of of the antagonist. Uh, just anyway, yeah, I I was I think I I think I probably said enough. I mean, you know. I, I went and looked online to see what kind of reaction this film's getting. It's super positive. It's a very, very popular film, very well-reviewed, and, um, you know, it, it makes me wonder sometimes about horror genre um, tropes and whether I'm just less forgiving of them. And maybe that's why, you know, I think people who go to see horror movies are going to forgive a lot of stuff if they feel scared and creeped out. And, I mean, this film, I, I, I was creeped out, maybe even a little scared at times, but I couldn't forgive those <laughs> those issues. And this is going to come up again and again during the course of our conversation today, Stephen, because uh, I have some strong feelings about some of the other movies we watched. Too. Well, you know, as, as someone who's watched most of the Halloween movies and has, you know, suffered through them for good or for, although I, I got to say, I hadn't, did not see Halloween Kills. And, and now that we've got Halloween Ends out there... Um, uh, I feel like, oh, do I have to catch? Because I've heard it wasn't very good. It was a big fall off in that first David Gordon Green Halloween movie. Uh, and that Halloween ends is a little better than the second installment, but maybe not as good as the first. So I'm kind of like, should I just cut my losses with, with that particular reboot of that franchise and, and just move on? But so many of these films, I've, I've, I've forgiven them greater faults. But but uh, I... I, I you know, I, I like the, I did like the makeup. I did, you know, the, the, uh, the thing that's living in the basement, shall we say, is, 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 is certainly super creepy and, and, and used effectively for the most part until a couple of moments where it's like, oh, wait, no, that, that I don't buy. Uh-huh. Um, so, the, the, you know, the, then it's like, well, you know, Michael Myers, you know, has this kind of supernatural ability and we buy that for the most part in some of the better, um, installments in that series so yeah it's hard to draw a line sometimes yeah well i'm gonna draw some lines here let me tell you (laughs) um but let's go back and consider some of the movies in the criterion horror of the 80s uh, collection Uh, starting with i'm just going chronologically uh next of kin from 1982 that this is not to be confused with a number of other movies called next of kin including (laughs) one from 89 patrick Patrick swayze Swayze. which has an amazing cast by the way it's one of those great kind of straight to video treasures Mm -hmm. that may not be a great film but it's got so many familiar faces in it that you might want to check it out one of these days right well i've never seen it but i now have seen next of kin from 1982 uh it's australian horror co-written and directed by tony williams and um it's kind of the story of a prodigal daughter linda stevens played by jackie karen who inherits a nursing home in rural australia when uh 
her mother dies, and um, it's a kind of place that's it's actually beautifully uh, the whole region around we see a lot of exteriors and it's gorgeous we see these amazing overhead shots of people swimming in flowing muddy wit rivers and uh, and then we also get you know enormous hand-sized spiders on hanging <laughs> yes. laundry that just are flicked away they're not even that big a deal it's like oh there's a huge spider yep. that's gonna flick it away that would be a huntsman spider we, uh-huh. we saw some of those ourselves when we were down there yeah terrifying <laughs> stuff anyway but i i did appreciate that the sort of the terrors aren't restricted to this house they're out there in the in the in the world around as well so um so yeah, uh, Linda starts reading her mother's diaries and she realizes that her mother thought there was a ghost in the house. And then there's a suspicion of her Aunt Rita who was institutionalized and, and she's supposed to be dead, like long dead. But then there's some doubt as to whether she actually is. Uh, and then meanwhile, she's also Linda's also having a fling with a local fellow, Barney, who she knew from days before. And it's a, it's a really interesting film. I mean, it's, it is certainly a horror uh, in some respects, but it also has this kind of odd like family drama aspect to it uh and linda is such an interesting character she always has a kind of a half smile on her face this sort of air of mystery around her um i mean she sort of thinks of herself as kind of a realist she's not sure if this place can keep running as a as a nursing home in this old house with all these these elderly folks uh, hanging around um but uh but at the same time it, you do get a sense of it actually operating like it's an actual it actual it's not all just a set like you feel like this is an actual place that exists and i i like that um and i really did enjoy the um the prowling camera work uh and of course the soundtrack which is naturally by Klaus Schulz who is, uh, we're going to talk about Tangerine Dream a lot today. Yes. <laughs> and this is the first instance. Uh, he's, of course, the, the famous German musician who uh, who was kind of one of the main players of Tangerine Dream, uh, the electronic German electronic act who did a lot of uh, scoring of movies in the 80s, a lot of great scores, some of my favorites from the, the era. And, uh, and he, yeah, he does, he does some music for this movie as well. Um, so yeah, I mean that's I mean that was my take. I I, I thought it was interesting uh, and and well shot and uh, and definitely a different tone. Yeah, I, I I like this film quite a bit just for the the character of it. Uh, it was and it was definitely set in Australia. I watched another movie that we ended up not considering for this episode because it was so disappointing, and that's something called Strange Behavior by a, a director named Michael Laughlin. It was set in Indiana but shot in New Zealand and produced by notorious Australian low-budget producer Anthony Janine and it it does have a real low-budget feel about it there was it, and it, the fact that they're trying to make New Zealand feel like Indiana is, is one of the weird quirks of the film but um, but just something about there were, it looked cheap it would look like it was shot on the cheap they spent all their money on getting uh, American actors Michael Murphy and the late uh, Louise Fletcher um, are kind of the main characters in in that, or two of the main characters, and and it looks like that's where all the budget went because it didn't go into the script or the fact that you know there's there's very little score on on, on key scenes and it just feels dead. So um, anyway, so that's you know have a look at it if you're curious. But but the next to Kin was a better film than that, so I'm glad that that's the one we went with. And I, I, there's a lot to like in it. I did like the Australianness of it, as I said. You know, the, there's a there's a great uh, truck stop that we, we that uh, Linda stops at early in the film and then becomes the scene for the big climax at the end. And um, and it's a, it's a it's a great uh, setting. There's lots of uh, ads for classic Australian snack foods like chico rolls, which are kind of like these deep fried egg roll kind of things that 
or you know, if if you have one, and you, you really don't need to ever have another one. But they're they're a favorite. They're kind of like a Australian Donair in a way. Every truck stop has them, um, and uh, and Violet Crumbled chocolate bars and all this kind of stuff, paddle pops and so on. So uh, I did like that uh, sort of authenticity of it, and and the setting of the funeral home or the the nursing home rather well, might as well be a funeral home by the end of it. But lots of people are passing away. Uh, yeah, yeah it, it's uh, it's it's a great location. They really make the most of it. And I love some of the, the quirkier denizens of the home as well that that uh, that uh, Linda has to sort of deal with uh, in her new post uh, running this facility that her that her mom used to have. And uh, it's 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 such an interesting film. Tony Williams, the director, uh, I think it's it's only his only horror film. In fact, he didn't really make many narrative films. He was mostly a documentarian. So I I don't know if he just did this for the money or for for a laugh. I mean, he did a documentary about Kenny Rogers tour of New Zealand. That was like one of his previous projects. But, uh, you know, at, at least he has a sense of, of, you know, how to make it atmospheric and, and cinematic and, and, and fun. I think, uh, I think the people making this were just kind of trying to surprise themselves, have a lot of fun and make something kind of outlandish and, uh, and, and, and inventive and, and just kind of have fun with the, the subject matter. And we're back on Those Me Your Ears, our special pre-Halloween scary movie edition. And uh, we've been delving into the 80s horror collection that's been assembled on the Criterion channel. But these films are are well-known enough that they're available through other sources, either in physical media or on other platforms. But um, the next film is one that's kind of been not elusive because it's, it did come out on, uh, on VHS back in the day. And it's, you know, that version has been posted on YouTube and I believe there have been releases on DVD and physical media sporadically around the globe, but, uh, it's been hard to see in a really, really nice copy and, uh, virtually impossible to see in, in its uncut version. Uh, and I don't think that's what we got. This is a, we're talking about the keep directed by uh, Michael Mann uh, from 1983. And of course, Michael Mann is a director we've talked about quite a bit on this show. We're quite fond of his work, um, you know, throughout his career. And uh, and this is uh, obviously 83. It's early in his career. And it's, uh, it's a really interesting attempt to make a sort of hybrid war movie uh, and supernatural kind of extravaganza, if you will. And I think it mostly succeeds. Uh, but of course, uh, the problem with the film is that we're seeing a compromised version of what Michael Mann wanted to do originally. I believe the director's cut is probably twice as long as the uh, hour and 38 minute uh, copy that was uh, released to theaters at the time and was the one that's, uh, I believe, been uh, released on home video in one form or another. Uh, but but it's, you know, it's 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 a great kind of sideways uh, companion to Raiders of the Lost Ark, perhaps, where a bunch of Nazi soldiers uh, arrive at a, uh, a remote village in, I believe, in Romania, so actually Transylvania. Where, where, why not Why not be in Transylvania if you're going to make a creepy movie? And there's a, a mysterious fortress called The Keep that where there's something being stored inside. There are these mysterious silver crosses on the walls and, and there appears to be some sort of vault protecting what they believe to be some mystical and ancient treasure. Maybe it's the Holy Grail, who knows? They, they don't actually say that, but, but they, um, you know, and, and they're clearly under orders to, uh, to take over this, uh, this castle, this mausoleum, whatever you want to call it, and, uh, you know, preserve it for, uh, you know, some higher ups that, 
have a better idea of what might be in there than they do. Uh, and then, of course, uh, so we've got the uh, the regular sort of infantry uh, who are um, commanded by Captain Klaus Vormann, uh, Jurgen Proshnow, who, of course, or Jurgen Proshnow, who you know from uh, Das Boot and many other roles. Uh, he's the sympathetic German soldier because uh, later we get the SS troops led by Major Kempfer, played by, of all people, Gabriel Byrne. Uh, and, um, you know, he's not sympathetic. He just want, He's not afraid to mow people down with machine guns and have firing squads, whatever it takes to, to you know, uh, put the, the, the grip of fear on the, on the local peasants and the, and the priests that are in charge of guarding uh, this uh, this this stronghold and, uh, and just, uh, get whatever treasure is in there and get it back to, uh, get it back to Berlin. So, uh, of course, uh, it's not, uh, not really treasure that it's, it's, uh, keeping, uh, enclosed within its walls. It's some evil force, uh, which of course is no surprise to the viewer, but is certainly a surprise to the, uh, the Germans who, uh, begin, uh, getting often, um, very intriguing and, and explosive kind of ways as the film goes on. And it's, you know, I guess that's the fun is watching this uh, evil force kind of take out these, uh, these German soldiers one by one. And then uh, also along for the ride, we've got um, um, Ian McKellen plays a, um, I guess a, a historian who kind of has some knowledge in this area. He's actually in a concentration camp uh, and they release him so he can come and, oversee whatever, you know, this procedure of, of, of getting out what's in the keep. And we also, it takes a while to figure out what's going on with uh, this other character played by Scott Glenn, who, who kind of comes alive. He's in Greece and all of a sudden he wakes up with glowing eyes once the, uh, the keep has been opened and he hops on his motorbike with a mysterious, um, package around his, uh, you know, a long, some weapon of some kind that he's got slung over his shoulders and he hops on his motorbike. And he takes off for uh, Romania <laughs> to get there and, and I guess, uh, finish, finish off his mission, which, of course, we don't find out until the big climax of the film. So there's, there's a lot going on in this film. And, and th- there's often, like, gaps being filled in in the continuity because, obviously, large chunks of the story are missing as we uh, move along in this film. And you, I think even in some of the overdubbing that they're, they're just throwing out some exposition to cover up scenes that are missing from the film. So it is choppy, it is chunky, but it has some great special effects, some fun practical special effects, and, uh, and, and some great actors just hamming it up like there's no tomorrow. Well, you know, it's funny, Stephen, you describing it to me I, makes me really want to see it, except <laughs> I watched the movie yes. and I didn't. I, it's a disaster. <laughs> like Now, all right, let me also say for the record, and I will, I'm sure I've said it before, I really love Michael Mann. This is his second feature after the urban thriller Thief. It couldn't be more different than Thief. Yeah. And it couldn't be more different from the subsequent film, which was Manhunter. Uh, so, you know, I appreciate that he has, he was, you know, swinging for the fences here. This is certainly the weird weirdest entry in his filmography. And he disowns it. Yeah. Part, part of the reason why we'll never see a, any kind of director's cut is because he doesn't want anything more to do with it. Yeah, and I mean, mm. I also Tangerine Dream, we were just mentioning them. They're the, doing the score here. They are, It's but it's such weird, it's such a weird tone for this material. Uh, you know, and if it had that kind of sense of adventure, the sort of, you know, you mentioned Raiders of the Lost Ark and all these actors in it, then you there might be a sense of fun, but it is anti-fun. All the sets, and that's what they are, look like sets. Everything looks completely false. The effects that you mentioned are incredibly chintzy. They're chintzy, but I I love practical effects, even if it's, you know, obviously a a dummy 
you know, full of tomato soup that's blowing up. At, uh, and that's kind of the level of what we're talking about. We, we are, but there's also like animated, like clearly animated, like energy bolts and things. That oh, yeah. Just look oh, for sure. Really bad. Um, there's, you know, occasionally impressive in-camera visuals. There's one shot of a boat going towards the dawn uh, from Greece carrying, you know, the Scott Glenn character that I thought was just gorgeous. And there's some compelling use of slow motion, which is man has all, always done that. But the actual actual film is just so bad. I just every I was just it was a painful to get through it. Um, and you know, even with these cast, I, I just felt like like there was it was just everything was ill advised. I, I will say there were a couple of things that I liked. I like that the cast are an international cast, including Canadian Alberta Watson, yes. by the way, as uh, Ian McKellen's playing his daughter. Um, they don't try and adopt fake accents, even though they're coming from different parts of Europe, um, with maybe the exception of McKellen, who tries on some kind of New York accent. But, you know, I, <laughs> I, I did appreciate that. I'm not sure what Gabriel Byrne is doing. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, he just sounds like... He's he sounds like where he's from. I think he's Irish, right? Yeah, so he sounds like he's Irish, Irish yes. and and he's op- acting opposite a German actor and who's you know sounding German and they're both Nazis and you know whatever. I actually preferred that to trying to put on accents. It's a it's a pet peeve of mine. So that was okay. I like that and I like this discussion of you know good and evil and how the demon that is being kept in the keep is some sort of dark reflection of the behavior of the Nazis and whether making a deal with the devil is worth it if it means the end of your greatest enemy or what you have to sacrifice in order to to you know get a greater good there were all these kinds of conversations happening that i i did appreciate that that there was some thoughtfulness in the script but boy this is a bad movie and i just i i, I understand why man you know would have disowned it because boy whew, yeah yeah anyway there there you go that's my take well no I, keep. I, I certainly don't think it's a good movie mm. but but i still enjoyed it and i'm you know i, I went into it sort of knowing what I was in for, too. I think that maybe helped because I, I don't think I've read too many glowing defenses of the film. It's just one of those films that maybe people wanted to see, like myself, because it was generally hard to see, at least in, in a decent, watchable presentation. So at least we got that much out of it. Sure. Um, you know, especially, you know, nice digital spruced up copy with yeah. proper soundtrack. Yeah, I'd seen but, it some years ago, like a, a bad copy, and it didn't really make much of an impression. I was just like, oh, well, it's hard to see, and I just, I don't know that I had opinions on it. But now seeing it in a in a quality version on, on the Criterion channel, I was like, ugh. <laughs> um, anyway, so let's move on yes. then to one that I think we both enjoyed called Near Dark, which is a movie I watched years ago, and it's it has its reputation has only grown through the years. From 1987, directed by Catherine Bigelow, written by Bigelow and Eric Red. Now, I believe that Bigelow was married to James Cameron at the time that she directed and co-wrote this film. And maybe as a result, we shouldn't be surprised to see how many actors from Aliens yes, well, show up in the cast. That's why, I think. Yeah, Bill Paxton, Lance Henriksen, and Jeanette Goldstein are all in this movie. They were all in Aliens. And then uh, there's one moment in the, uh, in the movie where where one character is wandering through a, a, a sort of Texan town or, or Southern American town, and uh, Caleb, and uh, and he you see on the marquee of a cinema there, Aliens is on the marquee. So, yes. you know, there's definitely that. Tip of the hat. Tip of the hat, exactly. Um, now, this didn't do well at the box office, 
way back when, but it is considered a minor classic at the very least. Now, we mentioned it in passing on our vampire episode back in June of 2015. That's episode seven for anyone who wants to go back and give it a <laughs> listen. It's out, It's available to be enjoyed wherever you get quality podcasts. Um, but this is a moody little neo-Western and vampire picture. And in some ways, it's almost like a gang violence picture. It's It confidently overlaps all these genres. Now, our young hero, Caleb, played by the lantern-jawed Adrian Pazdar, he meets May, played by Jenny Wright, and they kind of have this little romance, except May is part of a troop, a group of uh, vampires. Um, and, uh, yeah, they're preying on people out in the desert communities, and she turns Caleb, that is, she turns him into a vampire, but he's resistant to want to hurt, hunt or hurt people, and he has his own family, and it makes him kind of an uncomfortable fit with these vicious, this vicious gang. Now, this funny thing is the vampires are kind of badass. When you first meet them, it's a little unclear whether we're going to really like them, like whether we're going to be feeling like, oh, we want to see them <laughs> munch on people. Um, but as we go along, we start to understand they are entirely evil. Only May sort of straddles that line. And, and we, you know, we, we kind of um, sympathize with her. And, and the, I guess the, the love between her and Caleb is the thing that really holds the, at the core, the heart of the film. Um, but boy, yeah, this is a real pleasure to watch again. It's gorgeously shot um, in the makeup and all the stuff that, you know, you kind of think uh, hallmarks of 80s actually still work because it's just so well done. The costumes, once again, Tangerine Dream yes. does the soundtrack. Um, and the Criterion ch- Channel copy is pristine. So, yeah, I really I really like Near Dark. Yeah, this is a film that's, well, this one's constantly been available pretty much in, in one form or another since it came out. And it's not hard to see why. It's, it, uh, I, and I think it's a film that uh, rewards rewatching too because there's just so much great uh, character stuff and, and, and nods to other films. And, and there's a lot going on that uh, you may not pick up on the first time around. I, I, I feel like it would make a good double. You mentioned the gang violence part. And I thought this would go really well with the Warriors. Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah. You know, there's, there's that, you know, that kind of funky comradeship between the vampires is kind of similar to what the Warriors kind of go through as they, they're trying to get back, uh, back to Coney Island from the Bronx. And, and in this case, uh, the, the, well, they don't even call them vampires in Near Dark. I don't think you ever hear the word vampire. No, you just, I you don't just think kind so. of know off the bat what they are, and and, uh, and and they're not even really like necessarily so desperate to have blood necessarily. I mean, uh, we when Caleb is turned, he doesn't understand why he's feeling why he is, uh, which is kind of a staple of vampire movies. But it's it's really every, everything meshes really well with the kind of slightly different vampire mythology that. Uh, that's been created for this film. And, um, I, you know, I, I like that it, it plays with some of the, uh, the ideas about, you know, crosses and so on. And some of the, some of the stuff that's uh, been part of vampire lore for so long, it's kind of, kind of debunked here. Not necessarily trying to make it realistic because there's still, there's, there's still a supernatural element to what's happening in this film, but it, it's, it's not, uh, it's not the driving force of, of what these, these sort of nocturnal, uh, scavengers are, are all about and uh, it's just uh, there's just so much great character work by everyone in, in involved that the, the, i mean bill paxton is having a field day with his character because he's loving being a vampire <laughs> he, <laughs> yeah. you know just being able to mess with people and and have super strength and 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 just uh you know sc- screw people's minds before <laughs> you take them out it's uh he's having way too much fun yeah. and, and lance henriksen his character um 
uh, Jesse. I mean, you learn more and more about him as the film goes along, and you you realize you know how long he's been around and what he's been up to, and and you kind of read into a lot of his history as well as uh, as more details are revealed. It just seems like a lot of care went into uh, developing these characters. Yeah, for sure. There's a scene in a, in a bar, which is maybe my favorite scene in the yeah. movie, where they're just like there's a bunch of really tough you know, biker type bar denizens and uh, and they start to piece together that these these newcomers, these visitors to town are are they're, they're all their lives are forfeit. And boy, is it impressive. Um, yeah, yeah, no, it's great. And I did like that the vampir- vampirism here is seen as kind of an addiction. It's not the first time that it's fit that particular analogy, but it works well in Near Dark. And uh, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's pretty amazing. It just goes to show, you know, maybe we need to do a Catherine Bigelow episode someday because uh, there's so many, she's done so many great films over the course of her career. Um, now, maybe we should move on uh, to one more from uh, 1988. And this might be my pick for the most fun of the movies that we saw uh, on this episode of Lens Mirror Ears, and that's The Blob. It's a remake <laughs> of the 1958 cheapy horror that starred a young Steve McQueen. Here, the bad boy is played by Kevin Dillon, who I will always think of as drama from Entourage, but I watched that, that show for quite a while. Um, you know, was, <laughs> was more of a fan of the show, I guess, than the movie, which was pretty terrible. But, uh, but anyway, um, it's tr- directed by Chuck Russell, who made a few entertaining genre pictures, including The Scorpion King, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 3, The Dream Warriors, and The Mask. So he's a capable filmmaker. It's set in small town California, Arborville, uh, which makes its money from a local ski hill in the winter. It seems a bit depressed. We check in on the local cop, the server at the diner, the homeless guy and his blue healer, the football star and the cheerleader, the mechanic, the priest, the pharmacist, all these kind of iconic small town America characters. And they all have just a little moment. So we sort of get to know them all. And then a meteorite falls in the outskirts of town, and the homeless guy is the first on the scene, and he finds a slimy, gurgling pink goo. Uh, and then we get this great edit to the kids sucking up jello at the dinner table. Uh, it turns out the pink goo is the titular blob, an aggressive alien slime that grows at a very impressive rate, and if it gets any on you, it'll melt your skin like acid. And sure enough, the blob starts to interact with the people in the town, killing them off one at a time. And Oh, we get uh, we get a super creepy scene where one of the teens is about to assault another one who's passed out in the car, and then the, the blob gets them both. Um, yeah, it's this is a, there's no pretension about what kind of movie this is. It's it knows what it is, and it it's all invested in the characters and the special effects. It's both gory and scary in places when it isn't silly. And Dylan and also Shawnee Smith as a cheerleader, they're really good together. Um, yeah, there's there's <laughs> there's one scene I gotta say. The one my my favorite scene is where there's a couple of lovers are making out and they spot the dude with the chainsaw and the hockey mask up on the hill, and then we realize <laughs> that they're in the we're watching a movie that the people in the theater are watching, where the two preteen kids have sort of snuck in to watch. I, I just think that's it's a great moment because we anyway it's like what is what is the dude with the chainsaw, the chainsaw doing, doing in the blob? Yeah. Yeah, um, and then the blob comes into the theater and starts eating people. And anyway, I, I really, I really loved it. I, I, and I even, 
if there were a moment where young Kevin Dillon, I thought, looked so much like Elliot Page, I just – and the hair is all wrong, but they really could be brothers. <laughs> um, but funnily enough, neither of them really looks like Matt Dillon. So go figure. Anyway, what did you make of the blob, Stephen? I liked it. This is – I don't know why it's taking me so long to watch this film. I've, I've heard nothing but good things about it over the years and that it's the rare example of, of a remake uh, that does everything right. And – I mean, I, I'm, I, I enjoyed the original The Blob. I think maybe the fact that it's young Steve McQueen makes it increases its novelty value mm. to a certain degree. Um, you know, because again, Steve McQueen playing a you know 25 year old teenager or whatever it is he's doing in that film, <laughs> right? Um, but you know, selling selling it with conviction, I, I do recommend the original. It does have that great Burt Bacharach written theme song, "Beware of the Blob," uh-huh. uh, which is a, a, another bonus. And actually, I think that was released uh, via Criterion as well. They they have a fondness for the original, so it's nice that they're presenting this uh, this remake. There's also there was also like a, a sequel directed by Larry Hagman from Dallas, huh. if you can believe that, called "Beware of the Blob" or something like that. That came out in the early '70s. That's probably best avoided. Um, but but in this case. Uh, it, it just has the right tone, uh, lots of humor, lots of fun practical effects uh, throughout the film using, you know, every, you know, back projection and rever- reversing the film and, and, and just various chemical reactions, I think. Uh, th- there's a lot of uh, ingenuity and cleverness in, in all of the visuals. And, uh, you know, and, and, and the script is, is smart. Like, it let, as you say, it lets us spend a lot of time with the, even the minor characters. For example, like the priest is played by Del Close, um, who is kind of like the godfather of improvisational comedy. Uh, I think he was one of the original, I think it was Second City um, founders who basically, like, created the parameters for what improv comedy is all about. And most of his stuff, I don't think he's in too many movies or TV shows even. So it's great to see him here as, as this kind of over the top priest who's, uh, you know, crying about the Armageddon coming. And, and he does get a great capper at the end of the film too. Like we, we get to, we get to see him at a few points throughout the film and he, and he's great every time he comes on screen. Uh, and, uh, it, yeah, it, it just, uh, it just has a real great sense of fun that I would love to see in more horror movies these days. Hi, I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson, host of The Food Podcast. But do you know what? It's not just about food. It's about people and their stories shared through the lens of food. The Food Podcast has been described as an audible fairy tale. How about that? You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. So come join us. We would love to share our stories with you. Welcome back to Lens Me Your Ears, a film podcast and show, radio show here. Uh, Stephen Cook and I, Karsten Knox, uh, talking about horror movies today, specifically 80s horror um, from available on the Criterion channel right now. And we got a couple more that we want to give our our attention to. And the first one is The Vanishing from 1988. Uh, it's also, I guess, a Dutch film. In And I'm going to attempt to say it, uh, the Dutch word, spoorloos, spoorloos, perhaps, maybe. I don't know. Close enough. Close. We'll see. <laughs> we'll see if our Dutch listeners, uh, you know, get in touch and go, hey, 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 this is how you say it. Um, it's directed by George Sluzer, and it's adapted from the novella The Golden Egg by Tim Crabbe. Um, and it's... Um, it is a chilly thriller that has definite horror overtones. It's about uh, 
uh, Rex and uh, Saskia, they're a couple driving through, I guess, the French Alps on vacation. And uh, she goes missing. They stop at a service station and she goes missing. Um, and you, it's one of those those things where you spend the first, you know, 10 or 20 minutes with this couple and they're, they're bickering about stuff and their relationship seems okay, but then it's not. And then, you know, she's basically saying, don't ever abandon me. Uh, and all the while, you know, as they stop at this service station, there's lots of people there. You can hear the Tour de France repeatedly on the radio in the background. And uh, and then, you know, she goes in to get a coffee and a, and a drink and she disappears. And uh, Rex is is desperate. And, you know, he he uh, he wants to find her and he'll do anything to find her. And then we and then the film does something that not a lot of films does, which it's not a mystery. Well, the specifics of what's happened to her are a bit of a mystery, but who has has abducted her is not, because we spend a bunch of time getting to know Raymond, who is a French professor of chemistry with a wife and two daughters, and we spend a lot of time with him, and we start to get to know his sort of psychology and why he would he would abduct anybody, and it is a, uh, and that is maybe the most chilling, terrifying part of this whole thing is 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 understanding Raymond's psychology. Um, now, this is uh, this is a film I'd heard a lot about, largely because the director ended up remaking it in English some years later, and I guess really botching it because <laughs> very the, much so. The yes. English version apparently is terrible. I have not seen that, but this was uh, probably gets my highest rating of all the films we watched. Just because it was, it, it there was just something so systematic about it. It's almost as as systematic as Raymond is. The film is as systematic in showing us just what we need to know about how this event changed, how how it was prepared for, how it happened, um, and then how these two characters, Rex and Raymond, find their way to each other years later, and and what happens when. Raymond reveals himself as the as the the guy who did this to Rex and and what the final uh, what happened to Saskia at the very end and it has one of the most chilling endings of a film I can remember. Yeah, it was a real uh, real blow to the psyche <laughs> to the first time I saw this back at uh, probably at Wormwoods uh, back when it came out in um, in the late eighties and uh, certainly one of the films that deserves. The uh, the description Hitchcockian uh, because <laughs> a lot of films uh, aspire to be that and don't really you know don't really manage to uh, to achieve such lofty heights. This film by by breaking some of the rules of, of thrillers and suspense films and kind of forging its own path in terms of how it treats its its villain and and how it kind of involves us in in what's happening on screen. I think by doing things that maybe. Hitchcock probably wouldn't have done it somehow managed to be more like a great thriller of his like one of his great thrillers than not and uh, but but it it definitely is its own film it's, it's not a pastiche it's not uh, trying to be someone else's film at all and uh, I, th- I think it's uh, really successful at, at getting us inside the heads of these characters and, and what they're going through Funny, funnily enough uh, you know when I was watching it like I don't think I've watched it since it came out uh, or at least maybe not since the 90s and I, for some reason, I thought it was, you know, there was more about uh, the search, about, um, about you know, Rex's search for Saskia or what happened to Saskia. But, but uh, it, you know, it doesn't spend as much time on that as I thought it did, that, that we spend a lot more time with Raymond than I remembered. And that just makes it so much more chilling. You know? um, 
you know, it's it's uh, it, it, and then I saw the remake and I was just like, oh, <laughs> why, why, why did they even bother? But uh, in fact, uh, Mark Kermode had a great line about it, um, about the remake, where he said that that the original version of The Vanishing was about the banality of evil. And the remake is about the evil of banality. <laughs> <laughs> oh, ouch! And it, that is that could not be more uh, accurate in its uh, in its uh, description of the difference between the, between the two films. So don't waste. Even if you're a Sandra Bullock completist, I would say avoid it. And that this film and its performances uh, and its just clockwork uh, manipulation of your expectations and 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 even beliefs uh, it, it is is really masterful. In, it, yeah, the way. It, deals with this material. Oh, absolutely is. You know, I, I think the setup was so, so compelling. I mean, I did struggle a little bit. At one point, Rex takes a Polaroid and he gets Saskia in the background with her, perhaps her abductor. And that, I found that a little hard to believe. And the idea that in broad daylight, someone would break into their car and steal their bikes off their roof at one point. I was like, really? <laughs> like this place, uh, France must have a pretty, pretty terrible crime problem if that's going to happen on a sunny day in the, in the French Alps somewhere. Oh, bike thieves are fearless. there's a halifax bike theft group on facebook and yeah yeah it's it's, they're 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 pretty bold so um but you know one thing about this film that really struck me is how period specific it is like in the costumes and the look of everything i couldn't help but think how if you were to tell this story today how technology would make it so different i think it's still doable but you'd have to work in cell phones dna testing surveillance cameras and raymond practicing his plan, sort of trying to lure women into his car, I don't think anybody would do that in 2020. Yeah, none of this would work yeah. uh, <laughs> in the present day. You really, and maybe someone who was, you know, born in the last 20 years wouldn't buy any of it for that reason. But, uh, but yeah, the, where are the surveillance cameras? What, you know, mm-hmm. did you try your cell phone? And, you know, none of that, none of those conveniences are, or intrusions, as the case may be, uh, come to play here. Yeah. So our last movie, let's talk about Lair of the White Worm from 1988, produced and directed by Ken Russell, who also adapted the Bram Stoker story. Um, now, I recognize this film was terrible, wasn't terribly well-reviewed on its release, and I just feel like people miss the fact it's, it's completely a comedy. Yes. Like, it's a comedy horror in such a big way. I understand why it's not to everyone's taste, and it is pretty campy and ridiculous. And Russell, of course, has this, he's a genuine provocateur. He has this great body of work behind him. So I'm sure that this, you know, stuffy film critics were like, well, this is just not up to his standard. But uh, the story is sort of this. Two adult sisters, even Mary Trent, played by Catherine Oxenberg and Sammy Davis. They live in a house out in the English woods. They rent it from Lord James Danton, who is a very young Hugh Grant. Uh, Also present is Angus Flint, played by Peter Capaldi, (laughs) who's a visiting Scott uh, architecture student. Now, he digs up in their backyard what might be the skull of a local legend, the White Worm, which is, in fact, kind of like a dragon, Um, an actual dragon, but one that lived in Roman times, you know. And another local mystery, the, the fate of Eve and Mary's parents, who disappeared one night the previous year in a nearby cave. Now, a local wealthy lady shows up in her Jaguar E-type, Lady Sylvia Marsh, played by the very game Amanda Donahoe, who is actually a snake demon herself, and she worships the legend of 
The White Worm. This is a movie with no end of double entendres. They come thick and oh fast, gosh, and no one seems to notice um, how many there are. And there are tons of visual puns, like the shocking image of a white hose in the backyard or the white hose of a vacuum cleaner. I mean, lots of talks of serpents and holes, and it's so painfully and hilariously Freudian. Um, and the casting of the sisters is so strange since they have different accents. There's so many bizarre moments and the hallucinations and visions of hell and pagan rituals and cheesy effects. But uh, it is – it is. I, I kind of, despite myself, really liked it. Um, <laughs> you know, Grant becomes the unlikely hero here. It's like he's just come into his inheritance and he's even got a butler played – he's basically British Batman without the cape and the gadgets and the obsessions. Um, at one point, he swings a giant sword, and I don't think I've ever seen an actor more uncomfortable with a prop <laughs> than I have in that moment. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, be careful with Lair of the White Worm. It may not be for everybody, but I, I laughed a lot. Yeah, it's just uh, Ken Russell at his most unhinged. Uh, it's based on a Bram Stoker novel, which I've never read, and I, now I've, I feel like I need to track this down and, and, and watch it. But I, I, you know, Ken Russell does not hold back. Yeah, it's it's his 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 id unleashed on the screen with this uh, ancient myth brought to life as his kind of excuse just to present as the most outlandish and uh, ridiculous uh, imagery he can come up with and, and really drive this cast to do some some outrageous things. It's weird to see a young Peter Capaldi after being used to him as Doctor Who and or as the Doctor on Doctor Who and uh, you know on uh, on other shows uh, where he's kind of famous for cursing, I guess. <laughs> and to see him here as this young, earnest archaeologist playing the bagpipes, uh, it's, it's, it's a fun turnaround for, for him and that character. And, uh, it, you know, it, it's, it's pretty campy. It's pretty over the top. But you get what you pay for with a Ken Russell film. That's right, yes. Uh, now, before we wrap up Lens Me Your Ears for this episode, we should uh, take a, a moment uh, to say, uh, and this is some very sad news from this week, uh, Jeff Barnaby, the Mi'kmaq filmmaker, he died of cancer this week at age 46, which is just shockingly young for, for uh, I mean, for anybody. Uh, he was a wildly talented filmmaker uh his last film blood quantum was the one that i think i really love but he his first feature rhymes for young ghouls is is a really special film as well um and uh yeah we just wanted to tip our hats here at lens mirrors for the you know recognizing his achievement in his short life and uh and also that it's so sad to to have heard this news very sad news uh you know the, the one positive thing I can think of is that this is the perfect time of year to revisit his work uh, because, of course, horror and mythology and uh, indigenous folklore are all a big part of, uh, of what he does. And Blood Quantum is, is a fantastic horror movie and his love of genre, but also of, of getting to the heart of, of matters of, of great import to the indigenous community. The, his ability to blend those in those two features uh, is truly remarkable. And, and we had reason to only believe that there were more great things to come from uh, from a still pretty young filmmaker. So, uh, yeah, it does come as a, as a, as a big shock, but his, his films are still out there to be enjoyed. Uh, blood quantum is on many platforms right now. Um, it's, uh, I think you can get it for a buck on prime or Amazon or whatever, but also through, uh, some of the other things like Cineplex and, and Apple and so on. And, and his, uh, debut feature, which ties in, it's, it's almost kind of like a prequel to blood quantum, but, uh, rhymes for young ghouls, um, is, is 
available for pretty much anywhere. Netflix, Crave, uh, it's Hoopla, if you have that through your library, uh, it's available there on CBC Gem and CTV platforms. And uh, we really recommend checking out these films. Yeah, and um, Blood Quantum arrives on CBC Gem on the 21st of October. So if you're listening to, to us uh, anytime around then, uh, that's another place to to go seek it. It's, uh, as Stephen says, it's uh, it's very much worth seeing. And, uh, you know, we're thinking about uh, about Jeff Barnaby and, and, and thoughts uh, uh, towards his family, of course, and uh, to all the film community here in in Canada, uh, who who we all loved his 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 work, and and hopefully more people will discover it. Thank you so much for listening to Lends Me Your Ears, our horror visit for this October episode. Uh, We are available to be uh, contacted via Facebook. We're on Twitter as well. My Twitter is also Flaw in the Iris. And Stephen, you're on Twitter as well. I'm at NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E. Thanks to CKDU for the studio facilities and for airing the show every second Tuesday at 5 p.m. And thanks to our producers at the Village Soundcast Network. And thanks to you for listening. We'll be talking about film again very soon. Lens Me Your Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network. All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Send feedback to lensmeyourearspodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.